are you old school? I'm old school. I appreciate where we came from and what we've become and the art of how we got there. And we all know how we got there. The digestive biscuit, sometimes described as a sweet meal biscuit. It's a semi-sweet biscuit that originated in Scotland and is popular worldwide. The digestive was first developed in 1839 by two Scottish doctors to aid digestion. The term digestive is derived from the belief that they had antacid properties due to the use of sodium bicarbonate. First manufactured in 1892, McVitie's Digestive is the best-selling biscuit in the UK. A prominent feature in British culture, the Digestive is ranked the fourth most popular biscuit for dunking into tea. And you know exactly what tea that is. It's Yorkshire tea, hot brew of kings, breakfast of champions, the drink for before and after sex. God bless Yorkshire tea and God save the Queen. I still didn't get paid for that. Hello and welcome to the Alcoholic Ominous Podcast, living sober after hitting bottom. It's really quite popular, but you try telling iTunes that. They haven't thought to add Alcoholic Ominous Podcast, living sober after hitting bottom to their new and noteworthy section. It's like they're putting things off, leaving it until tomorrow, waiting for a better moment, waiting for a bribe, or just being plain lazy. And I look every day in the new and noteworthy section hopefully but it's not there and I'm disappointed every day and every day is the same and you should see the dog shit that iTunes has added to their new and noteworthy section made in Chelsea RuPaul inspiring women parenting weightlifting increasing your word power me 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 this is all about me Selfish, self-centered, egotistical. I've got a podcast, but it's going nowhere. And I'm doing something about it. Tomorrow. I will procrastinate. Until then, every day is the same. Groundhog Day is a 1993 American comedy film with Bill Murray as Phil Collins, a TV weatherman who, during an assignment covering the annual Groundhog Day event, is caught in a time loop, repeatedly living the same day, over and over. Andy McDowell's in it, but she's not my type, but I keep watching this movie over and over. Maybe she will be my type. I keep doing the same things and I don't change. I follow a program of recovery in which men and women have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. I carry a book written by early pioneers who created a roadmap to lead other sufferers out of alcoholism. My name is Simon, I'm an alcoholic. I got some biscuits, I got Yorkshire tea, and I've got a lot of time, but every day is the same. Hello friends, and welcome to the Alcoholic Ominous Podcast, Living Sober After Hitting Bottom. And every day's the same, when you're an alcoholic. Often, every day is the same. Drink, work, home, drink, kids, bed, drink, sleep, wake up, 
think about drink. And we know, we know it's bad, but it's better than the alternative. And we know it's killing us. So we know we have to stop. But that's not today. That's tomorrow. And things will get better tomorrow. And we will stop tomorrow. But tomorrow is like today. And every day is the same. And that, friends, is how we have decades of alcoholism. Procrastination. Procrastination, one word with such a powerful meaning behind it. And we all do it. I will admit, I am often guilty of putting things off. I'll rationalise and I will sidetrack things. I don't get things done simply because I just don't feel like it. They aren't fun. They are not alluring, intriguing, and sometimes they feel mundane, insignificant or boring. So I tell myself, I'll do it tomorrow, maybe later. I'm not in the mood. I just don't want to. I mean, let's be honest. There are certain things I don't get enjoyment out of. And therefore, I just put them off to the last minute. So what was I doing when I was using drugs and alcohol? Where did that take me? Well, it took me to another place, a fun place, far away from reality. I'm Peter Pan, we know this. And drugs and alcohol helped me be somewhere else and escape reality. And what I was really doing was avoiding things. And this is what I do. Even now, I escape responsibility. I am my own worst enemy when it comes to being productive or reaching goals. And I am not alone, am I? I'm a master procrastinator and escape artist. And apparently becoming aware of procrastination and its role in my life is the step towards winning the battle against it. And most alcoholics have a tendency to procrastinate and to use avoidance behaviours. And these behaviours are a form of denial. We often forget to keep our promises. And we will get around to them. Eventually. Bill Wilson, the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, once wrote that procrastination was sloth in five syllables. So alcoholics tend to avoid important things. We are emotionally lazy and don't want other people interrupting our tendency for self-gratification. And other reasons alcoholics procrastinate are fear of failure. I'm afraid I won't do it right. Arrogance, don't tell me what to do. Childish fantasy, someone else will do it for me if I stall long enough. And where emotionally healthy people will avoid unpleasant tasks once in a while, alcoholics get compulsive with their need to escape the present moment. And this problem typically coexists with other negative emotional states. Anxiety, depression, distractibility, substance abuse, self-doubt, perfectionism, indecisiveness. We are master procrastinators and escape artists. And I don't know about you, but this is a big part of my alcoholism, procrastination. I watched The Truth About Alcohol on the BBC this week, and accident and emergency doctor, Dr Javid 
was on a mission to find out the truth about alcohol. And this is because in January our government released its new alcohol guidelines. And for men, now, the recommended weekly limit was cut by a third, to 14 units per week. That's the equivalent of about 7 pints of weak beer. And it brings it in line with the amount recommended for women. And Dr Javid aimed to explore the science of drinking and the new evidence for the health risks of alcohol. And Dr Javid asked, Why do some people get drunk quicker than others? What is behind red wine's healthy reputation? Is a nightcap actually good for your sleep? Does lining your stomach work? And can alcohol actually make you eat more? What a fucking waste. And we're doing it again. Another BBC alcohol documentary that can't be asked to look at the real killer of alcoholism. And instead, Dr Javid looked at people that have eight pints a week. People that drink red wine because it might be healthy in moderation. Sleeping after a couple of drinks. And the calories. Why does nobody tackle alcoholism? I'll tell you why. Because only alcoholics know. The procrastination, the hiding, the mind, the attempts to control, the need for more, the fear, the insanity, the darkness, the dirt and the lows. Only alcoholics know. I pay taxes. I fund the BBC. And a good looking doctor who has no idea about alcoholism and never really seriously drank in his life gets an hour of primetime television talking about rubbish and he knows nothing and he is looking in all of the wrong places and it pisses me off alcoholics are dying so here's to you BBC next time you mention alcohol make an effort because at this moment in time, you're up there with Drinkaware and Simon Cowell. You're not as clever as you used to be, BBC. That's why we've all got Netflix and Sky Television, because you let us down. And you never know, maybe I will get a show on the BBC discussing literature. You know, the famous authors, poets, playwrights. And maybe I'll just discuss the Mr. Men and focus on Mr. Bump and Mr. Messy. I'm tired of the BBC doing shows about alcohol but telling me nothing about alcoholism. I'm sick of Drinkaware being funded for nothing and doing nothing. And I want those guys that told me about alcoholism in the 1980s. The brave alcoholics that spoke to my classroom and spoke with knowledge and experience. And if you don't have them, I think you know where you need to look. It's been time. It's been time for a long time. Grab your digestives and don't let go. Okay, they're Scottish, but Jesus, there must be something we like about Scotland. 
you'll find a million things you like about Yorkshire. And if you look hard enough, you will find Yorkshire tea. Alcoholics, turn off the BBC, get off the DrinkAware website, mute that weightlifting podcast. Britain might have some talent, but every vote is just money for Simon Cowell, who hates everyone apart from Sunita and himself. Get your biscuits and tea, and let's have a look in the book. Let's have a quick look in the book. We have reached chapter 8 in our big book. And it's time for a bit of brutal honesty from me. I never studied this chapter. I read it, but I never studied it. I skim read it. Chapter 8 is called Two Wives. And I wasn't a wife, and I had a bad marriage. I didn't think that this chapter applied to me. I wanted to read Bill's story. I like the sounds of Bill. I wanted to read There is a Solution. I needed a solution. I wanted to read more about alcoholism. I wanted to know about God. I wanted to know how it works. And I wanted to take some action. And I wanted to work with others. But two wives, not for me. This was a chapter for wives. Women, the answers are not here. What is the point in reading this chapter when it does not apply to me? But from the start of this bloody podcast, I have promised to study this book properly for once. And chapter eight is two wives, asterisk. And at the bottom of page 104 it says, Written in 1939, when there were few women in AA. This chapter assumes that the alcoholic in the home is likely to be the husband, but many of the suggestions given here may be adapted to help the person who lives with a woman alcoholic. The point here is that this is the book. I know that there's discussion on updating this book for a modern audience because times have changed. But this is the book. Bill W., Dr. Bob and the founding members were not politically correct. They were not saints. They were typically men. So we are being told that we need to be mindful of this and that there are suggestions here that can help men and women and husbands and wives, gay or straight, so long as you love people, yeah? 
So, with this in mind, let's look at chapter 8, second paragraph, page 104. For every man who drinks, others are involved. The wife who trembles in fear at the next debauch. The mother and father who see their son wasting away. Among us are wives, relatives and friends whose problem has been solved. As well as some who have not yet found a happy solution. We want the wives of Alcoholics Anonymous to address the wives of men who drink too much. What they say will apply to nearly everyone bound by the ties of blood or affection to an alcoholic. As wives of Alcoholics Anonymous, we would like you to feel that we understand as perhaps few can. We want to analyse mistakes we have made. We want to leave you with the feeling that no situation is too difficult and no unhappiness too great to overcome. We have travelled a rocky road. There is no mistake about that. We have had long rendezvous with hurt, pride, frustration, self-pity, misunderstanding and fear. These are not pleasant companions. We have been driven to maudlin sympathy, to bitter resentment. Some of us veered from extreme to extreme, ever hoping that one day our loved ones could be themselves once more. Our loyalty and the desire that our husbands hold up their heads and be like other men have begotten all sorts of predicaments. We have been unselfish and self-sacrificing. We have told innumerable lies to protect our pride and our husbands' reputations. We have prayed, we have begged, we have been patient, we have struck out viciously, we have run away, we have been hysterical, we have been terror-stricken, we have sought sympathy, we have had retaliatory love affairs with other men. And there you go, the wives and husbands of alcoholics. And God knows why I never studied this before, because straight away I think about loved ones and what I have done and haven't done and put off doing. It's a powerful start to a chapter and it should make you think. And it doesn't get easier to read for us alcoholics because it's true. On page 105, in the middle of the page, it continues. Our homes have been battlegrounds, many an evening. In the morning we have kissed and made up. Our friends have counselled chucking the men we have done so with finality, only to be back in a little while, hoping, always hoping. Our men have sworn great solemn oaths that they were through drinking forever. We have believed them when no one else could or would. Then, in days, weeks or months, a fresh outburst. We seldom had friends at our homes, never knowing how or when the men of the house would appear. We could make few social engagements. We came to live almost alone. When we were invited out, our husbands sneaked so many drinks that they spoiled the occasion. If, on the other hand, they took nothing, their self-pity made them killjoys. There was never financial security. Positions were always in jeopardy or gone. An armoured car could not have brought the pay envelopes home. The checking account melted like snow in June. 
Sometimes there were other women. How heartbreaking was this discovery? How cruel to be told that they understood our men as we could not. The bill collectors, the sheriffs, the angry taxi drivers, the policemen, the bums, the pals and even the ladies they sometimes brought home. Our husbands thought we were so inhospitable. Joy killer, nag, wet blanket. That's what they said. Next day they would be themselves again and we would forgive and try to forget. The book is explaining alcoholism from the other side of the table, from the eyes of our loved ones. This is what Dr. Javid of the BBC failed to even explore. The misery and the pain of alcohol, the impact of alcoholism. And it's brutal and it continues. We have tried to hold the love of our children for their father. We have told small tots that their father was sick, which was much nearer the truth than we realised. They struck the children, kicked out door panels, smashed treasured crockery and ripped the keys out of pianos. In the midst of such pandemonium, they may have rushed out threatening to live with the other woman forever. In desperation, we have even got tight ourselves, the drunk to end all drunks. The unexpected result was that our husbands seemed to like it. Reading this properly for the first time is difficult. And in the middle of page 107, the book says, Under these conditions we naturally made mistakes. Some of them rose out of ignorance of alcoholism. Sometimes we sensed dimly that we were dealing with sick men. Had we fully understood the nature of the alcoholic illness, we might have behaved differently. And that is the introduction to Two Wives. Nobody suffers more than those forced to watch a loved one suffer. Our loved ones experience fear, depression, self-pity. They lie on our behalf. And when they aren't trying to protect us, they're praying for us. Our loved ones suffer from isolation. They often lack financial security. But more than anything, they must contend with constant disappointment. And some find that they even start drinking or doing drugs themselves out of sheer desperation. This one's for you, Dr. Javid of the BBC. Count those calories. Enjoy your drink in moderation. experiences as a practicing alcoholic. I procrastinated a lot. I still do. I put things off. I was always going to address my alcoholism tomorrow. Tomorrow, not today. Because today is difficult and I'll need a drink to get me through today. And it's okay today. If you had my problems, you would drink today. I read chapter 8 and it's not me exactly. I wasn't a bad husband, but I was drinking until the later years when I sobered up. 
I just hid it well, which probably tells you something about the closeness of my relationship and marriage. And it tells you that I didn't really have one of those wives that was bound by affection. I don't know. I'm divorced and it wasn't right. And I was, as usual, flogging a dead horse, tending the wrong grave, my marriage. And had I been sober, who knows? But I didn't do anything. The house was not a war zone. It was just silent most of the time. And there was bitterness and mind games. There were no love affairs, no police cars and no bums. I was just existing, getting by miserably. And drink helped. I hate to say it. It was both killing me and helping me. But I totally get chapter 8 because that would have been where this thing ended up. In failure, in frustration, in chaos. And I don't want that. I wanted love. We all do. Sometimes we don't get it. And the emotionally mature person does something. The emotionally mature person leaves, focuses on a career, gets healthy, finds someone else, has a plan. I didn't. And it's not just about two wives for me. It's two education, it's two career, it's two the house. And it's all a little bit disappointing. I didn't plan for anything. I put things off. And now, here I am in my mid-40s. And it could have been so much better. So I have to ask myself why I procrastinated. Why I didn't get out. Why I didn't try harder. Why I didn't build up. Why I'm not the man I like to think I am sometimes. I've had a disease and I have a disease. And I have suffered as much from the things I have failed to do as the things I actually did. And I have justified my procrastination. I have told myself that other things were more important when I knew they weren't. I have blamed other people for my failure. I have told myself that now isn't the right time. I've joked my way out of things. I have immersed myself in more desirable activities like drinking. I've told myself that this isn't a big deal and I've done something else. So that's me. I've wasted time and the passage of time scares me. I've now got more grey hairs than dark hairs. I'll never be in the Olympics. I'll never retire early. I'll never have a hit record. Maybe I'll never be successful. But it wasn't the fault of people, places and things that I had no control over. It was me. My alcoholism. My procrastination. And it's sometimes hard to look at yourself. I'm glad you didn't go to my junior school. Not because I don't like you. But probably because I do like you. But if you had gone to my junior school. You would have found old, horrible women that wanted to make children cry. Evil bitches from hell. Our teachers. It wasn't nice there. I was a good kid. I tried. 
But these horrible old women wanted to rule with fear. And they did. And there were good kids, in tears, going home, in tears, scared, not enjoying school. Good teaching, ladies. Sometimes the horrible old women would try to punish us by telling us to stand in the corner of the rooms with our hands on our heads. And they asked us to think about what we had done. And usually it wasn't very bad. They were just pure evil. No excuses, ladies. So you stood there in tears and wanted to be forgiven. Some kids wet themselves, worried about the punishment that might be coming. Some just couldn't stand there and they took their punishment early. But no one ever stood there, hands on heads, thinking about what they had done. They just wanted out to sit down with the other kids and get on with things. And I think I'm still that kid with his hands on his head. I don't want to think about what I did or didn't do. I don't want to suffer anymore. I just want to sit down and get on with things. Be okay with everyone. Go home without crying. But the truth is, I just want to run home sometimes. I don't want to face things. I want to hide sometimes. And I should have grown up, but I found alcohol early. Which meant I didn't have to face things. And I could just live in my Peter Pan fairy tale. And that is dangerous. And that's where I'm at today. I still run home. I still don't face things. I'm still scared of the old women, even though their names and faces have changed. And I'm not sure where I'm going with this one again. But anyway, you grow up, you go to high school, and you see that old woman that made you put your hands on your head and made you cry, and you just tell her to fuck right off. And then you probably get your arse out. You probably make her cry. Anyway, fuck you, Miss Little. Australian bitch from hell. You have seen my arse. And let's be honest, it's the only arse you will ever see. Ugly, evil bitch from hell. Welcome to big school. You reap what you sow, bitch. My week in sobriety. God, I feel better for that. Oh, I've not had a good week. My football team is shit again. I've got bills. I'm having to read chapter 8 and have a good look at myself. I couldn't see much of Game of Thrones episode 3 because it was all done in bloody darkness. Tyson Fury seems to be signed into a contract that keeps him away from cleaning up. I've had to buy new bed linen because my girlfriend said I was a typical bloke. Mary Poppins wasn't as good as the first one. And I'm feeling sorry for myself again. But it sure feels good to talk about the evil and twisted bitch that is Miss Little from Australia. I thought Claire was the major resentment, but actually it's Miss Little.
resentment. Miss Little from Australia. Maybe pulling my trousers and pants down was not the best way to get over this resentment. But that action served me well at the time, but I still have resentment. I thought Claire was the major resentment, but it's actually Miss Little. I'm still playing back all of the moments in my mind. The moments that you went out of your way to make a small boy and his friends cry. The girl that wet herself because you did that. The kids that you forced to scribble on newspaper in front of the whole class because their handwriting wasn't good enough. The school outing when we behaved ourselves but you still felt the need to find something wrong. The kid you called a bully but he wasn't, he was just unhappy. The kids that you locked in the storeroom. The scared kids with their hands on their heads, frightened and upset. The kids walking home in tears. The pain and suffering you caused to nice kids. And I'm pretty sure you're dead now because I saw you in the doctors in 2010 when I did my back in. You look like shit. And the receptionist said you were a right bitch. Do you know what, Miss Little? I forgive you. You've won. Good work upsetting little kids. Australia probably hated you too. God save your queen. Hallelujah. Good night. Sweet dreams, Miss Little. Sweet dreams. Karma will find you. You can contact me. Alcoholicominous at gmail.com Or anonymously via the website alcoholicominous.com I'm on Twitter and YouTube, sort of. But no good will come of these things. I wish to remind you that whatever I have said in this podcast expresses my own individual opinion as of today and up to this moment. I do not speak for AA. And you are free to agree or disagree as you see fit. In fact, it is suggested that you pay no attention to anything that is not in the AA big book. If you don't have a big book, it's time you bought one. Read it, study it, live with it, loan it, scatter it and learn from it. And if you are suffering with alcoholism, pick up the phone, find a meeting, tell the first person you see, you don't know what the fuck you're doing. It was the Battle of Winterfell. The dead attacked the North and the North remembers. Most of the dead looked like Miss Little. Apart from the dead giant, he looked a bit better. But you couldn't really see anything because it was all in the dark. When I got my arse out to Miss Little, it was in the daylight. I had the courage to do that. Courage change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference Australian podcast that I like the looks of um forgotten Australia true crime dark histories and unsolved mysteries forgotten Australia 
Gardening Australia, presented by Australia's leading horticultural experts and hosted by Costa Georgiadis. <sighs> Gardening Australia is a valuable resource to all gardeners. Australian True Crime, with Michael Laurie and Emily Webb. Abusing Young Children, with Miss Little. Making small children cry with Miss Little. <laughs> hey, let's be careful out there.